Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I'm your host, Michelle Berard, founder and CEO of Urban Book Editor, LLC. And I'm very happy to share this hour with you where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. Those of you who've been listening for a while know that Somewhere in the Middle is intended to be a safe place where we can learn and grow together. And we discuss a variety of topics ranging from love to politics to money to business and beyond. And that's because the human experience is wide and varied. You guys also know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows exploring life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel and has grown onto our own platform, but we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I also want to give a shout out to my guest on the November 9th show, Denise Bampo. You can connect with Denise at her website, BeWellBeSwell.com, and on social media. If you missed that show, make sure you listen to the replay. Denise shared her experience as a caregiver life strategist and as a caregiver herself who took care of two sick parents at the same time. You can get to the replay by visiting Somewhere in the Middle at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, slash Somewhere in the Middle Radio, and checking out the on-demand shows. You can find our complete show archives, including the November 9, 2018 show, at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, slash Somewhere in the Middle Podcast. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Genius is Common Movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. It is so important that we share this message with the youth. But remember, guys, it's not just for the youth. Sometimes we all need to be reminded that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. Now I am really pleased to introduce tonight's guest, Stacey McClam. Stacey McClam is an educator, a speaker, and now a best-selling author. In her new book, released July 2018, School Dismissed, Walking Away from Teaching, Stacy describes why she left the teaching profession. She shares some of the challenges that she faced during her teaching career. Stacy noticed a pattern over the years that some students suffered from trauma beyond her classroom management skills. Many teachers are not trained in mental health and trauma. Her book raises awareness about the issues so that both students and teachers can receive, receive the help they desperately need. Trauma affects the teacher's ability to teach, and as a result, some teachers feel powerless and flee the profession. 
Stacy has over nine years of teaching experience. She's taught in different states and cities, and she feels she can better serve her students outside of the classroom by exposing the realities that occur inside the classroom involving mental health, childhood trauma, and teacher trauma. As a law school graduate, she hopes to become an advocate for teachers by making legal arguments to improve the education system. So I would like to welcome Stacy McClam to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Stacy, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Michelle. Well, I am really thrilled to have you because, uh, it, because you and I were talking about um, transformation. And I know that you have gone through a lot of uh, transformation. And to get to that, I want to ask you to tell us a little about about who you are and how you got to be who you are today. Sure. So um, I am an educator at heart. That's what I always say. Um, I always wanted to be a teacher, and there's a long (laughs) journey and reason why I wanted to become a teacher. So I grew up in um, a middle-class black neighborhood However, the schools in my neighborhood were not the best. Ironically, you would think um, middle-class schools would have good, middle-class neighborhoods would have good schools, but that wasn't the case. And my aunt was a teacher. Actually, my grandmother was a teacher too, and my great aunt. And my aunt, um, when I was almost in first grade, told my mom, Stacy needs to be Um, at a different, she needs to go to a gifted program. She said, the newspaper prints school test scores and the the scores in your neighborhood are not good. This is what she told my mom. So my mom, um, my parents put me in a gifted program. So I was always bused starting in first grade. So at a very young age, I knew that there were inequalities in education. And I was very conscious of the fact that I did not go to school with the kids that I played with in the neighborhood on the weekends and, you know, in the evenings. And I always wondered how come I didn't go to the school that was only less than five minutes away. So my elementary school was uh, great. I had a lot of opportunities with uh, mathematicians, you know, uh, advanced critical thinking projects, just a great environment. I was on the leadership team. It was a very stimulating environment. And then when I went to middle school, I was bused with a lot of students from my neighborhood. But I noticed once we got to the school, I was in the magnet program. And so I was in class with mostly white and Asian students. And the students that I was bused with who were black students were not in my classes. Most, the majority of the school was um, black and Latino, but most of them were not in my classes. So I just thought that was strange also. And then in high school, I started noticing different tracks where I was in the magnet program, but even within the magnet program, there were three different tracks, advanced placement, honors advanced, and honors classes. And I just thought it was interesting and weird how these how students were placed in these classes and it was kind of arbitrary no one really told us how students got to be in those certain classes and so I was not put in an advanced placement class even though my grades showed that I should have been so my mom went to the school and 
you know, tried to get me in, but I wasn't able to get in. And I had a lot of issues with my high school counselor trying to discourage me and uh, leaving messages on my answering machine telling me not to apply to certain schools. So I wanted to go into education for two reasons. Um, One reason was because of my own experience growing up um, with inequalities in the school system and also because my grandmother was a teacher in segregated Virginia. And I remember as a little girl, my mom saying how her family was highly respected for the sheer fact that her um, mother was a teacher. So I always held teachers in such high regard, started teaching in Washington, D.C., which is where I got my teaching credential and graduate degree. Um, but my teaching experience, it was difficult my first year. It I was not prepared for it. The school where I did my student teaching was a good school in Washington, D.C., where diplomats sent their kids. But when I actually got my job, my first job teaching, it was a totally different experience. Um, it was a Title I school. The students struggled. It was a, just a very challenging environment. So I didn't know what to do, and I didn't want to continue teaching, actually, at that point. So I went abroad and taught in Japan. Um, I like to travel, and I had been to Japan in high school because my city had a student exchange program. Um, So I taught in Japan. After teaching in Japan, I came back to the U.S., and I thought, oh, I should go to law school, and perhaps a law degree could help me with education reform because I was still very interested in education. Mm -hmm. So I did go to law school, graduated, and I realized the law takes too long. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's a long journey. Um, I wanted to get back into the classroom again. I felt that the classroom showed me more immediate results. So I went back to teaching in Denver, stayed there three years. Um, Same pattern again with the children and the trauma and teachers not getting the help that they need, nor students getting the help that they need. So I went to teach in Kuwait. After I returned from Kuwait, I came back to my hometown in Los Angeles and um, started teaching again. And so I have a total of nine years of teaching experience. And um, yeah, I recently wrote a book about two months ago called School Dismissed walking away from teaching. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack just in your story. So if you don't mind, I'm going to go through and ask some specific questions. Sure. Your high school counselor had the audacity to leave you a message on your answering machine and tell you not to apply to certain schools? Yes, she did. Okay, tell me about this counselor and what what kinds of schools did she tell you not to apply to? Um, So (laughs) I don't know why she had it out for me and some other students, but I ended up going to the University of California, Berkeley. And in California, in the public school system, there are the University of California schools, the UCs, and then the Cal State schools, California State University schools. So To me, as a counselor, it doesn't necessarily matter what school a student goes to. You should encourage students to apply to many different colleges and universities. 
you know, and so um, I, I don't know. I don't think she knew that I was applying to the UCs, but her specific message on the answering machine, which my mom um, told me to come listen to the message, said said for me not to apply to the UC schools, only apply to the Cal State schools. And I just thought, that's odd. That's discouraging. You tell a, a kid to apply anywhere, like let the admissions counselors tell them no, that's not her place. That's so, wild. yes, yes. Um, there was also a summer program. I remember, I think, between my 10th and 11th grade year at Stanford University. And it was a struggle for me to attend. Um, I ended up attending, but she would not let me receive credit for it, even though I was supposed to receive credit. And there was another student who she told uh, the she told uh, him about the program and he received credit for it, but not me. And I'm the one that told her about it because I needed counselors um, approval. So she just, even with the, so I was in the magnet program, but with the regular school students, uh, this counselor did not tell them the right SAT dates. It was just um, a lot of things that seemed very intentional. Yeah. So they missed certain um, SAT dates because it seemed intentional that she gave them the wrong dates. Okay, so you know I'm going to ask if this was a white counselor. Um, she was not. She was Asian. She was Asian. Mm-hmm. Oh, of Japanese. Okay. okay, so we know there can be issues there as well. Yes. Sometimes. So, I, I mean, not to paint everybody with the same brush, but we know that there can be issues um, sometimes with our, our Asian brothers and sisters not really what I would say is respecting sometimes. Um, Even, um, I mean, who we are and, and our capabilities and, and buying into stereotypes. I think less so now than certainly 20 years ago, I'm going to say. Although I'm, I may be overstating. I'm, I'm referring from my age. <laughs> you know, um, you're, you're a good bit younger than I am. But just saying, I mean, there, there can be issues even there. Um, so what do you think? motivated her to say those things and to give misinformation i guess to hold students back is that something that you you found in others like when you started teaching did you find similar type things going on or is it much better at least as far as where you were um all of the schools that i taught at were title one schools which title one means the federal government has given the school a designation where they receive certain funds because most of the parents do not meet a certain income level. Mm -hmm. And so um, a lot of these schools have students, not all the time, but many of the students have um, a lot of issues. These schools are usually in challenging neighborhoods. um, And so... It's more institutional when it being at the school where you just see the whole system. It's not one specific person who is intentionally trying to hold kids back. It's like the whole system is not good and supportive and doesn't provide resources and kind of lets things um, happen. Like uh, the schools become immune and the teachers and administrators become immune to the problems and it just becomes okay to have mediocre schools. 
mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So it's not, in, it is, I guess, intentional, but it's not direct. It's just how the system operates. And it, it got very frustrating. I can imagine. <laughs> you know, one of the things I, I tell my kids all the time is that systems are, they try to perpetuate themselves. They're just like the cells in your body. Mm-hmm. All they want to do is replicate themselves all day long. Systems tend to be the same way because the bigger they are, the the stronger they are, and the harder they are to to get rid of. Right. <laughs> there's some danger in systems in some ways because because they tend to want to perpetuate themselves and not necessarily make necessary changes. Yes, I agree. It's a bureaucracy, and it it, it is perpetuating the status quo. So it's difficult to make change being in the system how do you how do you do that well, but, but to that same point you said to yourself at one point you know what i'm going to go get a law degree because maybe with a law degree i can affect change and then you came out of that and said i don't see that happening either what what do you think are some of the specific challenges with the education system or the public school system as we tend to experience it that make it so challenging to implement change from the outside or the inside? Um, Well, when you're talking about education, you're talking about people's kids. And I just feel that the root issue is that people don't care about other people's kids. Because if you cared about all the kids and cared about the country as a whole, you would want the entire country to be educated and to flourish and to do well. But if you have a capitalist system where there are winners and losers, the schools do a perfect job of separating people. And, you know, I'm not blaming the schools or institutions and making people uh, seem as victims. However, things, certain things that happen at certain schools would not be allowed to hurt to happen at other schools. And I don't think that's fair that, Schools are treated differently based on the zip code and based on who goes to the school. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) Can you give me an example of the type of thing that you mean, like, that might be accepted at one school that would not be accepted at another? Um, Chaos. (laughs) A lot of the schools that I taught at, um, and it's no direct reflection of the administrators because, again, I think it's, an institutional problem that one person cannot solve. But a lot of the schools that I've been at, you see students fighting in the hallways, and I've only taught at elementary schools, fighting, um, just a lot of discipline issues, no order, um, no high standards or expectations for even lining up, just order in terms of walking on the playground, lining up, having a system where kids line up safely and walk inside the building safely. Things that seem normal, you know, that should be inherent at a school, don't always happen. And it, you, it just seems like the kids are running the schools. Wow. And the schools are very negative and there are a lot of angry kids. So if... If there are, if you know the kids are angry, then or have issues, then you provide resources to address those problems. And at schools in better neighborhoods, 
kids can have the same issues, but they're provided at least resources to help those kids. The kid would not be allowed to disturb the whole class and prevent learning. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is causing so much of the anger that you were seeing amongst the students, especially such young students? I mean, elementary school, that's up to what, fifth or sixth grade, right? Right, right. Um, Just trauma in their lives. I think this generation, my generation and on, um, just, I guess, just with the times, there's a lot of trauma and this can play out in many ways. It doesn't have to be as extreme as a parent being incarcerated. It can be parents getting divorced or um, separated. Sometimes when things are not explained to a, a child, they blame themselves and think, for example, if dad moves out of the house, oh, the kid will internalize that dad didn't like me or that they were the, the problem with the parents splitting up when it has nothing to do with the child, but they come to school and feel abandoned and don't trust adults and, you know, feel that they're not good enough, even at six years old. So a lot of issues that happen in families, the kids inherit and it it comes into the classroom. The kids are traumatized and teachers don't, have the resources to deal with uh, mental health issues and psychology. We're not trained in those areas. And so it would be beneficial if teachers had professional development in trauma. Some schools are trauma-informed. They're called trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive classrooms, Mm -hmm. um, which is great, but it's not widespread. And also teachers take on what's called vicarious trauma or secondary traumatic stress where they take on the student's stress stress unconsciously and then that causes teachers to burn out and most teachers don't even realize how stressed they are because they become immune to it and most of it most of the times it's because the teachers feel powerless um, because they want to help the kids but they don't know how and they're not receiving help to help the kids so they just feel kind of stuck so how, how does that play out in the classroom? Give me an example of a typical day in, in one of these schools. Um, the student can try to fight the teacher, <laughs> like what happened to me in my situation where a first grader wanted to fight me. <laughs> um, wait, could... wait, 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 wait. A first grader wanted to fight you, like, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Why did a first grader want to fight you? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, hands up in the air, chest out, just angry, wanting to fight over something that had nothing to do with me. I somehow became the enemy. And, yeah, it could be teachers, I mean, students, just... <laughs> talking so negatively about each other and it's not normal like kid haha I talk about you no these are the the type of language that some of these kids use it's it cuts you deep like it it can hurt someone's core Mm. at six years old they are saying such negative 
awful things to people. I'm like, where did you hear this? Why, how did, why, you're not innocent. You're not an innocent child. So, wow. Well, what, what made the, what made the kid want to fight you? I mean, he just got mad. Um, it was a situation where because my school did not have proper playground, a, a proper playground lineup procedure, you had all of the kids, kindergarten, actually um, pre-K through first grade on the yard at the same time. And because there was no proper lineup procedure, the kids came into the building chaotically and there was a lot of commotion every day all day despite the teachers trying to get order like it wasn't a usually administrators are out there at the beginning of the school year and continue throughout the year so that you know they set the tone for the school and kids understand what is expected Mm -hmm. but we did not have that in place so even though the teachers tried it was just kind of normal to <laughs> to let it be chaotic. And so the kids came in upset. And I think he, that particular student had been arguing with another student outside. And they just brought the fight inside the classroom. And then I think he was already upset about the fight and just took it out on me. Mm-hmm. Because I I started teaching a phonics lesson, so I I was over it. I'd calm the kids down. Everybody was seated except for him. Mm-hmm. So I think just anger right. that could have been prevented had the outside playground procedure been better, and also if he had had the chance to have counseling for issues that he was going through. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's wild. Um, so when, when you are trying to um, teach in a class like this, how does that impact you as a teacher? Um, it's difficult. It makes me not want to teach. It makes me, um, and I, I was a good teacher. I tried my best. I worked when I came home, I worked on the weekends like most teachers and it ended up being a case of me sacrificing myself because I knew if I kept thinking, if I can help these kids and kind of figure out what's bothering them, then I can have a good day. So I had selfish reasons as well. Mm -hmm. I, if I could figure out their issues then I could have a good day. I was just trying to have a good day. And so it took a toll on me because that's pretty much all I thought about because the day was so horrible that I spent my time outside of school, not only doing school paperwork, administrative tasks, but trying to figure out the psychology of these students. And a lot of the other teachers too, I know would research ADHD on the weekends and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia because even though some of our kids were not diagnosed officially, we knew that uh, you could tell by their behaviors and the fighting and the violence that something was off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> something happened. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of things can 
would you would you hope to see administrations at the, at these schools doing to support the students and the teachers? One thing that I think would be most helpful is for administrators to just acknowledge that there is a problem and to tell the teachers we are on your side and we want to help you. That means a lot, you know, not to hide from the truth and not to act like there are no problems because clearly if you look in the hallway, you can see chaos. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I don't know how you can be an administrator and ignore your school because your school is an example of of you. The kids are an an example of you. So um, I think acknowledgement is important. And also with that acknowledgement, the administration should realize that the teachers need resources and professional development with how to deal with these kids. And the the teachers need counseling themselves But that's another story that I don't expect the school districts to pay for. But I do know um, Pennsylvania and I believe Oregon pay for their teachers to have counseling services. But I do think if, if, if teachers aren't giving counseling services, then administrators still need to provide some kind of trauma, mental health, psychology services for teachers to learn about how to help kids because it's not a situation anymore in some classrooms where there's just one kid who has issues. You're talking about five, six kids and that can stop learning in your class. Yeah. <laughs> that That's the problem. You can't learn and there's nowhere to put those kids or help those kids or talk to them quietly. I mean, I tried as a teacher pulling kids to the side, but some kids just need a one-on-one in a separate room by themselves with an adult to talk about their problems. So is it, do you think that um, the schools are not implementing or utilizing the school counseling program appropriately too? Because isn't that partly what like school nurses at the elementary school level and, and school counselors at middle school and high school are for? Yes, but they're overworked and the number of cases far exceeds the number of counselors and therapists. So my school only had one for maybe 500 kids, but we really needed at least 10, whether it's social workers, therapists, psychologists, any kind of mental health professional. I would say some schools need at least 10 professionals, and the district and the state don't, I guess, Uh, understand the importance of it Mm -hmm. and I mean it is expensive to pay for those people but their their skills are necessary right because we don't know what to do (laughs) we're not trained in in that area if there were three things that you could ask for for teachers you know on their behalf what would you ask administration for I I want to say I would ask them to listen. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, listen, like teachers, we're not making things up. We're not saying things for no reason. Most teachers are trying their best. And when we say things, there's a reason why we're saying it. So 
don't think that we're making things up because we're not. <laughs> we're we're on you know in the front lines in the trenches, and we're telling you for a reason. If if you listen to the teachers, it actually helps you and it helps the kids. So uh, number one would be to listen. Um, let's see another thing I would tell administrators would be to have proper procedures in place for your school, meaning basic lineup procedures, basic, how do we walk down the hallway? What's, you know, what's our standard for walking in the hallway? Do we even have a standard for walking in the hallway? What's the noise expectation during assemblies? Just how do we maneuver the building? How do you walk in the stairwell? Just safety kind of procedural issues that make a big difference. The third thing I think would be um, administrators coming into the classrooms and actually helping with the lessons. I think administrators are supposed to be the instructional leaders of the school, but unfortunately many are overworked and they have mandates from the district and the state and so most of the times they're not in our classrooms uh, most of the times they're in their office so they don't see what's going on in the classroom and I think they do need to be inside the classroom with us sometimes um, just more frequently so that they can so you know see what's going on and don't forget right, right. what yeah what's actually happening down the hallway <laughs> yeah because it seems like it's um it seems like you move up the ladder in, in certain areas and maybe you forget what it's like to actually manage a classroom, huh? Right. Yeah, exactly. that's challenging. Mm-hmm. And at least if the administrator's in the room with us, they they're, you know, can be familiar with some of the standards and see what the kids are actually learning. And if they're, if they're an instructional leader, they can give tips mm-hmm. or, you know, Um, constructive criticism to help you out but making it more like a team effort not like an evaluative type um, observation but coming in as a a team player wanting to help you as the teacher and wanting to help the kids like really there to provide guidance and support well I'm curious then in, in school dismissed Walking away from teaching, what did you put forth in there as, you know, some of these things that are some potential solutions, you know, or or, or some things that teachers can do? Are there anything that teachers can address without the administration? No, I didn't include any because I can't think of any. (laughs) Because it's beyond our control. It's more than, yeah, it's more than classroom management. What I did propose was the 10 mental health professionals and also schools of education who, at colleges and universities, who prepare future teachers to work with the school districts and also hospitals because pediatricians um, oftentimes know the effects of trauma on the brain. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I would like their expertise at teacher professional development trainings. Um, So the school districts 
working with the schools of education and also hospitals, like a whole holistic type approach to helping schools. Actually, you know what you mentioned hospitals that brings up something else that I'm curious about. Mm -hmm. So we know about the Flint water issue. And we also know that lead leads to ingesting lead mm-hmm. to um, hyperaggression leads to um, uh, learning or cognitive uh, skills going down. Yes. And then we look at the schools in the Flint area which are, are considered to be some of the worst, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking out of, out of turn here possibly because I'm, you know, but what, what the reports were was that some of the schools were some of the worst in the country, supposedly. What if some of these things are, are physical? What if they're actually not trauma related? What if they are also chemical related? Then what? Because then, then what do you do as a teacher, as an administrator? What do you do? Right. Well, that's, it goes back to the, the administrator has to advocate, but that goes back to what I said initially, where that would not happen at certain schools. It wouldn't even be a question. Like, why would you have kids in an unsafe environment? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen at some schools. So to even question why, you know, how could an administrator or what should an administrator do? Why do they have to do anything? They, they shouldn't even be in the building. You know, the school shouldn't even be functioning. Right. The health department or district or whoever, the government should have put the schools in a better, uh, the kids in a better school or done something, even if it's purchasing trailers, but moving the kids off of an unsafe environment. It doesn't make sense. It's illegal. But I do think there are a lot of chemical issues, as you're stating, um, lead paint and a lot of things that slide by in certain communities. Um, so I had a book signing in Washington, D.C. last week, my first book tour. And mm. stop. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and I had it in Washington, D.C. because that's where I started teaching. And one of my Uh, friends who came to the event is a teacher in the Maryland area and she actually mentioned that um, at her school there is a lead issue and nobody does anything about it like it's a health code violation and nothing's done (laughs) so then let me ask how aware is the community how aware are the parents did she get into any of that I'm just curious if she got into any of that with you um, not, she didn't mention the parents, but, but it, administrators know and teachers know, but it's like, they're not heard. It, it doesn't matter. Wow. Cause I mean, if I found that out about my son's school, well, they wouldn't want me, they, they wouldn't want this. <laughs> you don't want this. You don't want me coming. I already get, you know, can get out of hand. You don't want me to come over there asking you, what are you doing poisoning my kid? Because then it's going to be on and popping for real. Right. I can't even imagine that. The, the, I can't imagine that the parents know. 
that's it, my that's my question. I want. I mean, have has 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 anyone said, hey, let's start some community meetings and inform the parents of what's going on, or are they forbidden from doing so by the school district? And I know you don't know the answers to these questions because it's your friend's school, but I just am mind boggled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know, but even with um, protest and people advocating, I've seen it in the past in, in different scenarios at different schools. Some parents are just shut down. Like I've been at um, meetings where parents are angry um, and discussing things that they see in the school and some of the expectations not being met. And the administrators listen, but then nothing's actually done. But that doesn't happen at all schools. Right. It, you, some schools you don't even get to the point to have angry parents because everything's taken care of and the so expectations are met. So are you going to just, are you just going to say, you know, predominantly white schools, you don't typically have these problems or not? Because I hear you're trying to be political, politically <laughs> correct. And I, I don't, I feel you, but at some point, you know, you got to call a duck a duck, right? Walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a dog on duck. Right. Um, yes, predominantly white schools and or um, higher socioeconomic status schools. Okay. So depending on your zip code. So that may not, it may be um, a wealthy area and, and it may not be all white students, but definitely wealthy areas, you know, will have good schools. Right. This has to be, I don't know, this is one of those things where it's really challenging for me because I know the lengths that I, I had to go to to keep my kids in schools that I consider to be acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's challenging, you know, like, so they we, you know, we, we were from New Orleans, but we lived a lot of the time in Atlanta. And so in Atlanta, they have a magnet school system. Okay. I, I jumped through hoops to keep the kids in decent magnet schools. Not, not specifically because I didn't think the schools were good, but because I, I was concerned with a couple of things. One is I don't think it's necessarily good all the time to go to all black schools. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think it's, I think we need to push ourselves out of our comfort zone. I think we need to push our kids to, to be in those other spaces so that they can navigate those spaces mm-hmm. better. And they, and I think that that's how we're going to change a lot of things is if we can, if we can, when we have the opportunity, push them into places where they aren't necessarily uh, automatically going to go. But the other side of it is you'd see the way, I, at least what bothered me was if I felt like there were two sets of rules at the predominantly black schools in Atlanta, there were all kinds of rules like, for example, and this is, it's going to sound stupid, but like if you wanted to pay for aftercare for your kid at the predominantly black school, you had to come there with cash mm. or a money or I'm like, what do you mean mm. cash or money? I don't carry cash. Who carries cash? Right. Yeah. You that, know, mm-hmm. but when we went to the predominantly white and Asian magnet program, all of a sudden you could write checks and right and debit cards and credit cards and all kinds of, I said, well, what kind of crazy is this? <laughs> right. 
Well, well, I mean, black well, school, you got to roll up with cash like you, you know, like you can rub band banks like you a rap artist. <laughs> <laughs> like, like uh, you know, like you're a drug dealer or a rap artist or something. And and then over here, you can do business like normal people do. I didn't, you know, that kind of thing really disturbed <laughs> Like normal people do, right. I mean, it's like the assumption that the black parents, I guess they think their checks will bounce or they won't have money. Yeah. Cash to pay. I have no idea. And then even worse, you'd see the aftercare teacher counting up the money. And she looked like she was counting the money like she about to go buy some Milano Blancs or something or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh, that ain't your money. You ain't supposed to look like that when you count. It. Right. <laughs> you look like that when you count it. You know what? I'm gonna bring money orders because because <laughs> you ain't taking my money to go buy you. Right. You know, I mean, I it was it was bizarre, and I think those kinds of, those were the things that I saw mostly in Atlanta. Of course, we weren't in you know Atlanta proper. We were out in DeKalb County, but just those kinds of things. It really kind of disturb me and I know that those are minor issues compared to the kinds of things that you're talking about fortunately the kids didn't seem to have issues like that and they didn't deal with chaos like that but just I don't I can't even imagine having to work in that kind of environment right but even the example that you just gave it speaks volumes because it gets to the heart of there being two separate sets of rules as you stated and it, it may seem minor, but it's not. It it sets precedent, and, and that's why other rules are allowed to happen that don't happen at other schools. You know what I mean? So it, it is these minor issues. Um, professors have researched this. Sociologists have researched these types of issues. It matters. So it, it's not a minor issue that that you know, should be dismissed, it sets the tone for the entire school. So it's like a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Right here, we're treating the black parents differently than we treat the, the white parents, basically. Right. You don't respect them. You're not going to hear what they have to say. It's, it says a lot about their um, value. And that's why they're not going to be heard when they speak mm-hmm. up. Wow. Yeah, that gives a lot to think about. And and frankly, it makes me glad I'm almost done with public schools. <laughs> <laughs> two more years. Two Congratulations. <laughs> so were your kids bused to the magnet schools? No. So um, when my oldest started at the magnet high school in DeKalb County that she went to, um, they did have a bus system. But DeKalb County also had, well, okay, I'm, I probably shouldn't equate these two, but in my mind as a parent, this is how I equated them. They also had a problem with corrupt officials, and mm. they had written into these folks' contracts that the county was going to pay their legal bills. So I guess in paying the legal bills for these criminals who were stealing money from the district, they um, decided they were going to take away the buses that were taking the kids to their magnet school program. And um, what they did was they instituted a kind of a centralized system. So the parents would have to get the kids either directly to school or to a centralized bus location where buses would then leave from there and fan out to the different magnet schools. And they 
they made that change and basically said, you know, tough titties if you're having trouble getting your kid to school. Mm -hmm. um, we're not required by law to provide schools to the magnet. Provide buses to magnet school was basically what they said. Um, I'm unaware of any parents suing over it. I would have thought some of the white parents would have, but I guess they just thought, oh, well, we'll just put them in the car and drop them off. And But it made it very difficult for uh, a lot of parents because that particular district is huge. It's like, I'm trying to think what could we equate it to in Los Angeles Unified. It's, I mean, yeah, Los Angeles, I don't know about the map of Los Angeles Unified because, you know, I'm out, I'm out towards San Bernardino, but like San Bernardino is huge, you know, right, that right. county is enormous, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. That's kind of how DeKalb County is. So it, it was really interesting to have to navigate that at some points, having to figure out how to be in three places at once <laughs> or, right. close, or close at once. I was, wish, I was wishing I could be like Samantha and Bewitched and just wiggle my nose. <laughs> it was terrifying. It was horrible. But um, we made it through. But, yeah, it was difficult at some point having three kids in three different schools and having to be in three different places almost at the same time because wow. of the way they navigate, they, 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 what I would say, circumnavigated the law about having to provide transportation to the kids. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that my issues, the reason I said it was minor is by comparison, I think our, my issue was so minor you know, it's like a first world problem, so to speak, you know, being well, hungry versus being starving. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, because even still, you should have been able to send your kids to the best school in your neighborhood. Like you really, when you think about it, you shouldn't even have to have magnet schools because all schools should be operating at that level. So, you well, know, then we have to get into the politics of magnet schools. Right. I, you know, I graduated from a magnet high school. So I, and, and that was the only public school my mom would let me go to. She didn't want me going to any other public school in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. uh, she had me in Catholic school until I refused to continue going because it didn't make sense for her to struggle to pay for it when she had lost. She, she was, um, she was let go under the Reagan administration when the Reagan administration started downsizing, supposedly downsizing the government, mm -hmm. when they really actually increased the government, but they downsized specific types of offices. Oh, Yeah, so she, she got downsized, and she was still struggling to pay Catholic school tuition. I said, no, that's silly, and I refused to go back. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the only school she would let me go to. So I, I graduated from magnet school. I think that they're, they're – very good, especially when they're specialized schools, which my, my girls went to a specialized arts program school that mm -hmm. happened to be one of the top academic programs as well. But right. you're, there's, a, there's politics behind the concept of magnet schools, right? There were certain parents who didn't want their kids to go to school with other kids. Right. And they came up with this brilliant concept. <laughs> And um, when I started in the magnet school, you had to take a test to get in. But they've made that largely illegal, I think, around most of the country. Yeah, I had to take a test, too, in first mm -hmm. grade. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I had to take a test to get into the magnet school. And um, that, I think, sometime in, I want to say sometime in the 90s, they decided that might be, that might be illegal. 
and they changed those most of those schools to lottery systems at that point. Mm. That's what I think, I, if I recall correctly. I was out of the country for part of that, so I don't know. But that I don't know the details on it, but that's what I remember reading about, at least as it developed in New Orleans. So I'm presuming that may be what happened around the country when a lot of them are lottery now. Mm-hmm. But I believe it, I believe that if it's a specialized program, it's very good. But the challenge becomes, like, if if your neighborhood school has certain kinds of problems, and our neighborhood high school wasn't a bad school and it wasn't filled with bad kids, but there was a slight encroachment of uh, gang culture in mm-hmm. the school. And that's what I was concerned about. Right. Right. Definitely. Cause I'm like, we got enough problems. I don't need that. No. And then I have to get like Florida on good times. And, <laughs> <you know? laughs> It'd right. be some kind of mess, you know, that's just not necessary. <laughs> Right. You remember that? Do you? I do. I used to watch Good Times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would. It'd be something fierce. So you know, we don't need those kinds of problems in our lives. But that's where I think I get concerned. Is it? I don't think it's that the the schools are bad. I don't think it's that the teachers are bad. I think it's that there are so many of these outside influences, and I think this is what you were saying. There are so many of these outside influences that are coming in that there's no control over. There are no uh, are controls for, and then when they do try to control for them in the black schools in particular, their response is, well, let's make the schools more like jails. Let's put up metal detectors. Let's do this. Let's do that, as opposed to dealing with the actual root issues. Exactly. Am I correctly? Yes, you're saying it perfectly, <laughs> 100%. Well, what's next for you? You're, you've written your book. You are you're, you um, got your law degree. You're looking to advocate for teachers. What's next for you in, in all of this? What's your next, what's your vision? Well, I still have the heart for education, um, but I feel confined in institutions. So I am reinventing myself. I am, I, I, I will make um, movies about education. Um, I want to make documentaries as well as um, fiction feature films so that people can actually see because I feel like if people can see what I see that maybe it will get more attention and I hope to weave legal issues in the law in these films. I want to make it more palatable for people um, because when I talk about it, unless you're in the classrooms and or a parent like you, some people don't know how bad it is and how bad it affects generations. So I want to, I'm hoping that a film can show people the problems. Mm-hmm. To affect change. So I, I want to advocate is the main goal and to, to speak up about issues that I see in education. Advocate and educate. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I like that. <laughs> I love it. So um, what do you have going on? You just came back from book signing in D.C. What do you, where else can people connect with you? Do you have any uh, live events coming up? Any more book signings? 
Um, nothing on the horizon right now for events, but people can stay connected with me on social media at Stacy MacClam, S-T-A-C-I-E-M-C-C-L-A-M. That's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and then also my website, www.stacymacclam.com. Yep. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Stacy, thank you so much for sharing so much useful information, important information. Guys, you got to go out, get Stacy's book, School Dismissed, Walking Away from Teaching, where she describes why she left the teaching profession, and she shares some of the challenges that she faced during her teaching career. And let's all educate ourselves on this and figure out how we can advocate for our kids. And just keep in mind, everybody, even if you don't have kids, these kids are yours too because they are the people who will be taking care of you when you are old. <laughs> they, are, they are going to be the policy makers. You want them to, to have their stuff together. So we need to advocate for them whether they're physically ours or not. Yes. <laughs> Stacey, thank you so much for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Thank you for having me, Michelle. Keep up the good work. I love your informative information. It's wonderful. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michelleberard.com. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-E-B-A-R-A-R-D.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Make sure you guys tune into the show on December 7th when my guest will be financial expert Kendall Weaver. You can find us every other Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at bit.ly, bit.ly, slash, somewhere in the middle radio. You can also find us at bit.ly, bit.ly, slash, somewhere in the middle podcast. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.